It was on Sunday, February 6th, 2022, that we first opened to the book of Romans together and began our study. I wasn't sure at that point how long this was going to take. Uh, I was ready for a couple of years or more, but we've been following paragraph by paragraph. We haven't skipped a thing, and now here we are looking at the very last passage. I'll admit to feeling more than a little bit intimidated back then in February of 2022. This is Paul's longest letter. This is his most intensely theological exposition of the gospel. This book has some very challenging topics, some passages that when you cover a whole book, you've got to deal with everything. So I knew back then that we would eventually be looking at some difficult passages on say, the depravity of people, uh, of the, uh, the, the challenging doctrine of God's election, of the, the future of the nation of Israel. All of that's been here and, and, and much, much more. In fact, every week, and I admitted this from time to time, Uh, to individuals, maybe even uh, at the beginning of a message, that I found every week to be challenging. And this week was no different. I I told the the church family I was preaching to last Sunday that uh, I had been pursuing this study and that I had one passage left. And you don't even get a break. Uh, We've got some challenges we need to to face here today. But at the same time, I can testify God's grace has been sufficient. Whereas I would begin every week wondering, where's the message here? What is this all about? By the end of the week, I really felt God had given direction and insight. That's my daily prayer uh, all the time, not just with the book of Romans. But now all that's passed. We, we've gone through every passage. We have one left. And so I just wondered, maybe you might feel like you're about ready for a test on the book of Romans. Wouldn't that be interesting as an experience? Well, I, at the same time, I recognize maybe you don't feel quite so ready. I mean, some of those earlier chapters, that was well over a year ago. And I I know what happens to things that you looked at over a year ago, and even over just the last few months, things start to fade. And in fact, looking back, I would maintain that the book of Romans continues to have an intimidation factor for us. If somebody... Somebody were to ask you, well, just tell me, what is the book of Romans all about? Isn't it challenging to, to, to get your mind around the whole thing? I mean, it's one thing to look at one section of verses at a time. But what does it all mean together? What's the big picture? 
that we are to have from the book of Romans. Wouldn't it be great to have a few takeaway truths that you could share with somebody? Say, well, here's what we learned in the book of Romans, and of course, so much more detail, but here's the point. Here's the issue here. I think that actually is what Paul is doing in this last passage. Not just in his closing benediction, which is lofty and full, very significant for us. But of course, in God's word, even a list of names like we have in today's passage, there's a message there for us as well. And it's, in fact, I'd like to point out something peculiar about this passage. You may have noticed that you look at verse 23, and after verse 23, you're expecting verse 24, aren't you? What happened to verse 24? Well, let me settle your, your, any anxiety about that. Paul never wrote verse 24. He actually, actually, verse 24 was probably a, a, an insertion by an energetic scribe who said, well, now finally Paul's done with all of his greetings at the end of 23. So Paul probably meant to put what he says at the, at the end of verse 20. Paul thought he was done with, with the letter at that point, just had the benediction, so he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul probably meant to put it there, so he wrote it in the margin, and then other scribes wondered, well, who put that in the margin? Was that Paul, or was that somebody else? And it just found its way in, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, it's a biblical statement. Paul did say it in verse 20. But I think Paul meant it for verse 20. And he wants to connect 21 and 23 directly with that closing benediction. Because together they summarize the message of the book of Romans. You think, really? A list of names, of greetings, and that's part of the message? Absolutely, it's part of the message. What is then the message of the whole book of Romans? Well, here's my summary of what this passage says, which I think is not just representative of of these few verses, but of the whole book. The gospel changes lives through Christ. The gospel is not theory. The gospel is not just a lofty idea. It's not just theology. And and never disparage theology. We are all theologians striving to be the best theologians we can possibly be. Theologian is simply someone who studies God. That's a big part of our assignment. Even the list of names here communicates to us the message that the gospel changes lives through Christ. But that puts a burden on each one of us. How do you respond to the gospel changing lives? The lives of others, 
the gospel changing your own life. How do you respond to that? The book of Romans says there's only, ultimately, there's only one appropriate response that summarizes everything else, and that is God deserves all the glory. Because the the gospel changes lives through Christ, you must give the Lord all of the glory. He deserves it all. And that becomes the focus of the rest of our lives on this earth, a commitment to give God the glory that he deserves. There are two parts to this passage. Paul's Final list of greetings is not as long as the first part of this 16th chapter was, but these are significant. The first part of chapter 16 were all about people that are serving in Rome, people that were there, and Paul wanted to greet them. But now Paul seems to take a look around the room where he was located at that moment, where he's been writing the book of Romans. He is currently, as best we can determine, in the city of Corinth. And from that place, as he looks around the room, there are people there. Real people. Real people who started out living their lives in sin for themselves, striving to find satisfaction in life and finding none. But as Paul looks around, he realizes the gospel has changed each one of them and has taken them from self-centered, sinful, fallen creatures to people that are bringing God glory in their own way, bringing him glory by using their gifts to honor him and to serve him. So Paul's point in these first three verses is that God has changed the lives of others. Let's go beyond just the idea of the gospel, what God has provided, and realize we have evidence of the power of the gospel all around us. Every instance of a human being, a fallen human being, that is currently striving to live for the Lord and to bring him honor is a miracle of his grace. God has changed the lives of others. Paul seems to identify these in a couple of groups Uh, First of all, there are those that are his closest associates that appear to be part of his team. Timothy is certainly a part of that. In verse 21, he identifies him as Timothy, my fellow worker. Timothy's whole life, he devoted to serving God by assisting the Apostle Paul. No doubt most of the time that was assisting him by being right there at his side, a trusted companion. Other times he was sent on a mission. I need you to go to such and such a city and that particular place of service. Timothy was Paul's trusted co-worker, he says. Look at Timothy. 
Look what God's done in his life. And we get a lot of insight uh, about Timothy throughout the New Testament. I wish I could be there to hear the discussions at the ABF tables uh, after the service this morning. You've got a list of questions, and I urge you, don't spend an inordinate amount of time on the earlier ones. I mean, I think they're going to be interesting as well, but you've got to get to those last couple as well uh, and, and, and see all that is there that can help spur discussion on this very same passage. But Timothy was assisting with the work, a regional work. Timothy went wherever Paul went or wherever Paul told him to go. Wide-ranging ministry because the gospel can enable people to serve him that way. Assisting with the work, Paul then notices that of those that traveled with him, not, not perhaps uh, uh, regularly, but they were there on Paul's team this time, he says, Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, they also send their greetings, but here's what's amazing about these three individuals. Paul says, they are my kinsmen. Not actually part of Paul's family. He means my kinsmen in that I'm Jewish and they are Jewish. And look at that as a testimony of the power of the gospel. The Jewish people in Paul's day and in ours were among the most resistant to that power, rejecting their Messiah. Now Paul says, here's evidence. There are three of them, a remnant, yes, and it's only a few. But look at the power of the gospel to change their lives. The gospel can break through hardened hearts, as he did with these three, now Jewish believers. Verse 22 is remarkable. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius, who is he? Where did he come from? We don't hear anything else about Tertius anywhere in Scripture. But here he shows up, and he's writing the Bible. Now, he's not claiming too much here. I wrote this letter. All he's claiming is that I was the secretary. I listened as Paul spoke, and I wrote down exactly what he said. What a responsibility. Here's another instance of the grace of God. The grace of God in the life of someone who maybe had ambitions of being a, a scribe, an expert in, in the law, and he really worked when he was in school, young people. He really worked on his penmanship. And now he's using it for the Lord. Paul, at some point in his career, he indicates that he may have had some uh, eyesight issues. And it was a great help to Paul to have a secretary. Somebody to whom he could dictate the words 
And that person would write it down in a legible form that then others could copy, which is how God's word got transcribed. Tertius here, the scribe who actually applied pen to parchment. I was going to say paper. And uh, it, it was probably parchment the first time, papyrus uh, later on. And somebody, when, they, when this arrived, the physical copy arrived in Rome. They realized, this is, this is the Bible. We better make copies. Other people are going to want this. And so they made copies and copies of copies. And that's how God has preserved his word. But here's Tertius. And it's just remarkable at this stage that as he's been so diligent and, and he realizes, well, Paul is, letting, is sending greetings from these other people. Paul, send greetings for me too. I want them to know that this isn't just a job for me, but it's, it's important to me that God use his word in Rome. And I, I'm just thankful that I've had a role. Send, send my greetings, Paul, would you? Uh, we don't really know how this would have taken place, but it, it could be that Paul says, well, Tertius, you've got the pen in your hand. You go ahead and send a greeting. Tertius, in the first person, gets to say, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, Paul had to approve that and, and, and confirmed, all right, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted to occur in that particular verse. But it's our reminder that God used real people, not only to be the authors of the books of the Bible, like Paul, but use others as well. And this happened in the Old Testament. Jeremiah had a secretary. And uh, no doubt others did as well. Real people whose lives the gospel had changed and were now using their gifts, whatever they were, whatever skills they had, to be useful for the cause of Christ. Now, Paul looks around the room, and there are a few other people that he wants us to see as evidence. Whereas verses 21 to 22 had people that seemed to be part of Paul's team, that were not going to stay in Corinth long term, but there were people from Corinth who were going to stay there and continue the work of ministry after Paul left. So we identify some of them, first of all, as Gaius, who he, he says is host to me, and we take that, that Paul means that he was staying there. When Paul is in Corinth, he stays at the home of Gaius. But then he says, but not only of me, to the whole church. Now, we aren't exactly sure how to take that. There are a couple of possibilities. I think the one that is most likely is that Gaius... God had blessed with financial means, and he had a home of sufficient size that the church, the believers in Corinth, could gather there 
and worship God and study his word. We don't know that this was the only one, but it, it could well be that they all fit. It maybe is a little tight. Like, it sometimes feels a little tight uh, in here. But there's room for everybody. And Gaius is willing to use his home, which you know, we have to know. Uh, that meant cleanup afterward. That meant preparation ahead of time. But he's using what God has entrusted to him for the work of the gospel. He names a few more then. Erastus, the city treasurer. The city treasurer, there's a politician, and God could save him? What a miracle! In fact, Erastus is confirmed in that position because they discovered a, a, a few decades ago in Corinth, right along one of the city streets, an inscription in a stone embedded in the ground. It's still there today, and it's easy to see the writing, uh, Erastus. And a few words about him. Apparently, he had sufficient means that he had provided for the paving of that street right along there. Maybe that was where he lived, or maybe there was just a financial need, and he met it, and the city honored him. But it's likely it's the same person. He had gifts. He used them for the gospel. God had changed his life. The last one, we don't really find out anything about him except that he's a brother. He's a believer. And maybe that's all we need to know. Here's just one more example. He happens to be in the room right now, so Paul's not going to leave him out, of course. Every individual is important. Every individual who has trusted Christ as Savior is a testimony to the power of the gospel to change lives. I'm going to speculate, though, just a bit. I think it's possible that Cordus got a special mention here. Maybe he's like the pastor of that church. Maybe. I don't know. But you know, it's a miracle that pastors have been forgiven of sin and are uh, are changed and still changing. That's a miracle of God's grace as well. Well, God enables then this uh, some for regional ministry. We praise God for those that are serving in other places. He also enables local ministry. Every believer is to be a part of God's program. And every believer says, Look at what the gospel can do. Now, from the evidence of those standing around him, Paul now finally turns his attention just one more time to the recipients of his letter. Okay, we know already something about those who were the first recipients. We read about them in the first part of this chapter. But Paul has in mind every recipient, whether you are hearing it or looking at it 
yourself. The gospel can change your life too. You look at the evidence of others. Can he do that for me? Can I get victory over sin? Can I grow in grace? Can I be useful to God as well? The answer is yes, God can change your life as well. These last three verses are remarkable in several ways. First of all, and here's why I'm uh, urging the ABF tables to persevere and try to get through to that last question. The last one for discussion today is going to invite you to compare these three verses and what they say with the first seven verses in this entire book. Those that have analyzed and compared these two, many have concluded that these are what we would call bookends to the entire letter, where Paul told us what he's going to say, the the themes, the main themes of this letter. Then he explains them all throughout the letter, and in these last few verses then looks back and says, see, I told you we're going to cover all these, and here they are again. Here then becomes Paul's three-part summary of the entire book. Not just corresponding with the first seven verses of this letter, but actually providing the outline of the whole letter itself. These three verses are, um, Paul identifies three subparagraphs with the words, according to. He says that three times. According to this, according to this, according to this. And that provides an outline of the entire book. The first eight chapters was Paul's description of the gospel itself. According to the gospel is his first point here. Chapters 9 through 11, Paul was explaining how can it be with all the promises to the Jewish people that they are currently, mostly, rejecting the gospel. What's the future for Israel? And Paul explains that. So that's all uh, according to the Old Testament prophecies. And then finally, verses 12, uh, chapters 12 through 16, we saw it to be just packed with practical exhortations about how to live the gospel in everyday life. And that's all he says according to the commandments of God. So he's summarizing the entire book for us, telling us that God can change your life. First part of verse 25, and we do have to subdivide these verses. The verse numbers don't quite correspond with the according to's that Paul lists for us. The first part of verse 25, God provides the grace you need to trust him. The grace you need to trust him, to accept Christ as your savior Even trusting Christ is not a good work. He gave you the grace to make that step, to admit your need, to trust the power of the gospel to save your soul. But he gives you the grace to trust him every day you live after that as well. 
and we need that grace. So you can trust the power of the gospel, Paul says. He says, to him who is able to strengthen you. Now, he doesn't say strengthen you to do what? Because Paul doesn't seem to be willing to narrow that at all. Strengthen you in every possible way. God is able to do that. He can provide the grace that you need through the power of the gospel. Paul calls it my gospel. He's not claiming any particular uh, uh, originality there. It's not that Paul's gospel is different from ours, but he means my gospel in the sense of the way I presented it to you in this whole book. This is what I preach. This is what I believe. This is what God's people believe and preach everywhere. Here's the truth of the gospel. You can trust that message. He says it's the message not only of the gospel, but it describes that very same message the same way by calling it the preaching of Jesus Christ. Not likely the preaching that Christ engaged in, but the preaching about him. The preaching about Jesus Christ. And there he is drawing together We have the gospel message, and at the very heart of that is none other than Christ himself. You can trust what Christ has done. You can trust what he accomplished on the cross. You can trust what he's doing in heaven right now. It was back in Romans 8 that Paul told us, he is interceding for you in God's presence right now. You can trust him to come back again someday just like he promised and to meet every one of your needs in the meantime. God provides the grace you need to trust him. The last part of verse 25 and going into the first part of 26, God provides the truth you need To know him. And there's something remarkable about this truth that seemed to be mutually contradictory. He says, All of this is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. The very truth of the gospel, Paul is saying, has been in the Old Testament right from the start. It's always been there. God has put it there, but, he says, it was kept secret. This is one of the remarkable characteristics of all of God's word, that it can state the truth right there, plainly, in front of your face, and still people can miss it. We can read right past it and never get it. That was true of the Old Testament all through the Old Testament era. So many people with hardened hearts exposed to the truth. They might even study the pages of the Old Testament, but they did not submit in faith to God. 
and the truth that was right there on the page in front of them never got to the heart. As it says in verse 25, according to the revelation, revelation is making something manifest of the mystery. A mystery is something you can't know until God reveals it, but it was kept secret for long ages, not hidden in some cave, but written in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, Paul gives the other part of that at the first part of verse 26. Although the gospel was once concealed in the open, in the Bible, it has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings, that's another way of referring to the Old Testament, the very same passages that concealed it, he says, now it's made clear. Now we can see it. It's been made known, and not just to the Jewish people, but to all nations. The gospel message that says Christ died for you. Christ can forgive your sin. Christ can change your life. Christ can use you in his service. It's right there. So that now we go back and look at the Old Testament and say, there it is. It's so clear. I mean, think of passages like Isaiah 53. Could he have said it any more clearly? And yet to this day, Jewish people look at that passage and goes right over their heads. They are unwilling to see that that's Christ. And that's what he did. But all around the world, people are responding to the gospel. Responding to the truth. The truth you need to know, to know Christ. That's what we have in the Bible. And you can choose to possess the Bible but keep it largely closed on your desk. Or you can choose to open the Bible and ask for the Holy Spirit to disclose to your heart the truth you need to know. President Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, died suddenly on April 12th 1945. It was a critical time for our country. We were fully engaged in war, the Second World War, both in in Europe and in the Pacific against Japan. There, There were lots of things going on and lots of uncertainties in the world and in the country. And then the president dies. His cabinet and senior staff realized before this news gets out into the news media, we've got to know that the next commander-in-chief has already been sworn in. That's got to be what the nation hears first. And so the vice president, Harry Truman, was summoned to the White House. 
He was at the Capitol at that moment, so he made his way down the street, got to the White House, didn't know why he was being called. They told him, the president has died. They gave him a quick briefing and said, and we, it's, we've got to get you sworn in. You've got to take the oath of office. And someone said, well, we, we have to have a Bible, right? Oh, yes, we need a Bible. A, a quick search of the Oval Office turned up no copy of the Bible. They sent aides scrambling down the hallway, looking in every office, calling out, you got a Bible in here? Anybody got a Bible? Nobody had a Bible. Finally, the word came to the butler in his little office. And he said, well, I've got a Bible. And he brought it out. Oh, they ran it up to the office. Truman took the oath with his hand on the Bible. Think of that. The highest levels of government in our country at such a point in history, and apparently nobody is consulting God. Nobody is opening up the truth. Nobody thought it was worth their time. Our country was in greater danger than anyone knew at that time. What an error of judgment. What a wrong assessment of priorities. Don't you be guilty of that error. God's word must not sit on your desk. You've got to open it. Ask the Lord to show you the truth you need to know. Finally, God provides the plan you need to serve him. It's a perfect plan, as we have seen in the book of Romans. And so one more according to, it's in the middle of verse 26, he says, according to the command of the eternal God, and that's describing his overall plan for the world and for each individual, it says, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. You see, God's command is our standard. What do I do today? Well, you check with God. You obey his command. You follow his instructions. True faith will submit to the word of God, to what he says. And the purpose for that, he says, is this universal invitation to respond in faith. Here's the key that obeys the Lord. Almost strikes us as an odd way to say it, except that he said it the same way in those first seven verses of chapter 1, to call it the obedience of faith. You see, if there is no obedience, there's no true faith either. True faith will commit itself to obedience obeying what God says. All we need to know is what does God expect of me? 
That's what I want to do. That's the hope of the gospel. The the gospel has the power to enable you to conform to God's plan. You don't have to continue in sin. God can free you from that. You can arrive at God's goal of walking with Christ, obeying his word. The end of this coming week, there's going to be a two-day conference down at Atlanta. It's going to take place at the North Point Church in Atlanta, and they're calling this conference the Unconditional Conference. This is designed for Christian parents of LGBTQ plus children. How to respond to the challenges that that presents to parents. And uh, all well-intentioned. You think, wow, that would be a real help. I mean, these are real issues that Christian parents are grappling with. There's a problem with that conference. Some of the keynote speakers are themselves committed to their own same-sex marriages. They are not going to say that there's anything wrong with homosexuality or any of the other LGBTQ plus offshoots. What they're going to hear at that conference is that any professing believer, no matter what lifestyle they are engaged in, The church needs to welcome them as legitimate members and affirm them. How does that square with the gospel? Does the gospel say, well, we really can't, there's nothing you can do about your sinful lifestyle. You're just going to have to uh, continue in that. But after all, we accept you as you are and everything's going to be okay. They would even suggest that that approach represents true Christian love. It does no such thing. That's hopelessness. That is denying the power of the gospel. True Christian love says the gospel can change your life. Here is hope. Here is the prospect for victory. You don't have to wallow in sin. For all of the misguidance that our world, our society is providing, here is the light of truth. Come and be free. That is genuine Christian love. And to do it in a loving way from hearts of genuine compassion for the captivity of sin. That's reality. But the gospel can set them free. That gives us confidence that no matter uh, what people we encounter, no matter what they're engaged in, the gospel can change their lives too. Our response to all of that, Paul summarizes, he reserves it here, but he said it innumerable ways throughout the book. 
To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. The only wise God, that's the same person Paul described in verse 25 as him who is able to strengthen you. The one who can change your life is in fact the only wise God. Why highlight the wisdom of God? Look at what he's designed. Look at the plan he has laid out. Look at the power to back up that plan. He deserves the glory. It's all from him. Giving him the glory then becomes our lifelong ambition, and not just this life. This will transfer to the next one as well. The gospel has power to change lives, and God deserves all the glory for that. The admonitions implicit in this passage, read God's word every day. You need to know him better. Ask for his help to obey his word more earnestly, more thoroughly. Ask him to help you give him honor for the gospel that has saved your soul. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how we thank you today for your son, for your saving grace, for the gospel itself. We thank you for your word where you've made it all plain. Thank you for the book of Romans, the truth that you have conveyed to us there. Father, help us now to see the enormous responsibility we have with all these gifts you've imparted to us, all the power that you have available, the wisdom of your plan. Father, help us to do our part to bring you the honor you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.